classical culture. Usually, when we have lectures or host conversations, we presuppose what Montana Classical College is and why it is a good thing. Today, I would like to tell you what MCC is and argue for why it is good. Over the last three years, I've written a number of essays that lay out the vision of what MCC is and what it aspires to be. Here, I aim to bring those thoughts together into a kind of in-depth manifesto for why a parallel college that exists outside of the present credentialing structure is both necessary and good. A lot of you already have a clear sense of what is wrong with the university system, so I don't want to speak to you about that for too long. But I will start out with a few thoughts on why, and I'll also note as an aside that I am working on a much more comprehensive piece on this topic for the near future. I don't want to just assume that the university structure is bad without, you know, having some kind of demonstration of that being the case. So here, I won't lay out a demonstration. I'll just say a few thoughts about what seems to be wrong with the hope of saying more about this in the future um, as we move on to the, you know, ultimate mission and structure of Montana Classical College. Um, So let's begin. The average university has moved so far left that any semblance of an education that deserves the name is now nearly impossible to find. This state of affairs is one that has been long anticipated and well documented by observers as different as William F. Buckley, Alan Bloom, and Jonathan Haidt, to name only a few. Hundreds, if not thousands, have taken up the pen to shine a spotlight on the all-too-common grotesque absurdities perpetrated by colleges all over the country. College students find themselves bombarded by loudly shouted and utterly confused platitudes concerning race, sex, history, and almost everything else important. In sum, they're being asked to turn away from the quest to understand human nature. They are shoehorned into speaking with ideologically charged terms that presuppose far too much, and they are asked to deny what they can see with their own eyes. Their only access to reality, a careful examination of speeches and deeds, is being pulled out from underneath them. The consequences of this outcome are nothing less than devastating. Harry Jaffa describes what is at stake if university professors become corrupted in his book, The Crisis of the House Divided. Quote, I was aware that I was a member of that comparatively small class, the university professoriate, that today is the decisive source of the ruling opinions in our country. Primary and secondary teachers, the mass media, and the elected officials are usually 
the retailers of ideas that come in the first place from the universities, and in particular from the graduate schools. Here is where the teachers of the teachers are taught. We have become, and this is, I think, pretty important, uh, jumping out of his quotation and now back into it, quote, the ultimate source of change in the regime. The ultimate source of change in the regime. This nicely anticipates things Curtis Yarvin says um, in his blog, Unqualified Reservations. When uh, you will, I guess, among many, many things, he notes that universities seem more like theological institutions than anything else. And that whatever students are learning at Harvard now will be what respectable Americans will all be thinking 20 years from now. And the pace of this has only accelerated in recent years. So many of us are able to say what is wrong. And yet these words have failed to stop the encroaching evil that has beset our country and much of the Western world. It is too little, too late for piecemeal reform to save our educational institutions. It's time for something new. Now, without doubt, exceptional teachers of the first rank still exist within the belly of the beast. These teachers are rare, and most students will float through the mire and never discover them. These teachers are like a plank of wood out at sea after a shipwreck. They can help save your life, but you're still out at sea. What if instead we build a college from the ground up that could weather the tempests and take its sailors together to somewhere beautiful and good? That is to say, a mission-aligned institution where even the janitors must buy into what is happening at the college, where everyone agrees about what counts for an education, where everyone understands how dire our situation is and is ready to fight to make it better. So, what is the mission of Montana Classical College? MCC has a mission that makes it distinct. It promotes noble deeds, the understanding of nature, and the defense of the nation-state. But what are these three things, nobility, nature, and nationalism, and how do they fit together? Stated extremely concisely and in full awareness that much more should and could be said about them, we can say this. What is nobility? A noble action is a beautiful one. Its beauty or resplendency is proportionate to the difficulty or self-sacrifice demanded by the action. To be noble is to be free. It is to have contempt for mere life. When others say, that is too difficult or dangerous, so I cannot do it. The noble human being sees a choice. Rather than live as a slave, he can defy what others claim are necessities, like danger. Okay, there's more to say about that, obviously, but we turn to nature. Nature is the matter of which something is made in the form or shape that sets fixed limits to how much change or growth a thing can undergo. It is a term of distinction. Understanding the nature of a thing is to understand its essential capabilities and limitations that distinguish it from other things. It is not man-made, and so it is the opposite of law 
or convention. It exists before those things. For example, a man has a nature different from that of a woman, and so he cannot change from a man into a woman. And if he tries, well, it will be quite ugly. Um, there's more to say about that as well. I hope to say more in the future. But we turn next then to a concise statement on nationalism. The core of MCC's support for nationalism is fighting for the world to remain in distinct parts and not to allow nations to be absorbed into a blob-like technocratic, sorry, excuse me, technocratic slum-filled world state. People who promote globalism almost never think in terms of natural or unnatural. And while they feel as if they're animated by a noble goal in uniting the so-called human family, they ultimately hope to extinguish the possibility or need for noble, heroic action. Thus, men of the mind, those who would like to understand nature, and men of action, those concerned with noble deeds, are brought together against globalism. Now, uh, a dear friend criticized me somewhat recently in like with very good motivation for supporting nationalism or for supporting the nation state, not because he's a globalist, but because it isn't really clear that, you know, from Aristotle's perspective, or maybe you could just say from a reasonable person's perspective, that if you were concerned with, you know, national revitalization, can you actually coordinate? 300 million people toward anything other than a very superficial cohesion. It doesn't seem likely. Uh, the polis uh, was a lot smaller than that. Um, <laughs> right. So anyway, regeneration or reorientation towards healthy goals is much more possible at the local level. So in that sense, I say the MCC supports nationalism more as a signal to others of our anti-leftward stance. MCC is highly interested in exploring different forms of political and social organization that might exist in a world where the nation state collapses or in which it continues in a degraded state. But I would say this, I love the United States, and for as long as the U.S. persists as a nation state, then supporting politicians who support or rather, who put the American people first before other nations and look out for their good, um, that's a good thing to do. Those are the kind of politicians you want uh, for as long as we have a nation state. So again, as with the other categories, there's more to say about nationalism as well, but we can leave it there. MCC is interested in supporting noble deeds, understanding nature, and supporting nationalism. And that leads us to the next question. Um, should the right wing create activist colleges? My answer is yes, because MCC is an activist college. Uh, we could say this, many think that the left corrupted our universities by making them politically partisan instead of truth-seeking institutions. Many classical liberals or conservatives think, therefore, that it would be a grave error for the right to respond in kind by making its own partisan educational institutions, that they would be too, or sorry, that they too would make the solemn error of distorting truth-seeking 
by subordinating it to practice. There is something to be said on behalf of these conservatives. If or to the extent that an institution is devoted to changing the world in a particular way, it runs the risk of both willfully and unintentionally ignoring evidence that suggests that such particular change cuts against the truth. If one, I mean, for example, if one runs a pharmaceutical company, then viruses could look like financial opportunities. Such a person might presuppose that a disease that kills the old and the unhealthy should be solved through a massively profitable vaccine rather than through a serious call for citizens to attend to their health in a big way. In other words, and it is almost too trite to say this, one's interests threaten to distort one's perception of how the world is. But there is a deeper reason that those on average, or that those, <clears throat> that those conservatives might put forward. We can become so intent on changing things that we ignore whether such change is either possible or whether it is actually good. To put this one more way, seeking the truth is like the mind's attempt to see the world as it is without changing it, or in a sense, without touching it in a way that moves it. Action, on the other hand, is about moving the world and making it otherwise. And all action presupposes an understanding of what things are and how they should be. So, a university that pushes its students to the right might make them so overcommitted to their presuppositions that their thinking becomes ossified into dogmatism at the same moment that such students think that they are liberated from dogmatism because they are not on the left. Such concerns can never be lost sight of. However, first, as is well documented, our top universities have reliably moved left for a long time, with most others following suit, just more or less slowly. Programs that once served as guardians of the Western great books are being axed wholesale or diluted one book at a time. Second, only the tiniest handful of schools would be prepared to openly say that you ought to love your nation more than others, and that you should be prepared to be a citizen and guardian of your nation. Most promote the very opposite. They promote deracination, the forgetting of biological differences between the sexes, and preparation for being mere consumers in some kind of technocratic world state that attempts to extinguish the possibility of genuinely noble action. This is what being a global citizen means. In other words, our universities, and certainly not only our universities, seem to seek a world in which the very conditions that make citizenship and truth-seeking possible are eliminated. The quest for equity overtakes and overwhelms these goals. The hope to sustain the so-called liberal world order which is to say, making the world vassal states of a deracinating ideology, uh, and, and to put a brief aside, liberalism, as noble as it tried to be in its origin, has fallen steeply. Um, this logically points toward a world state 
uh, to go back a state to, to go back a step towards saying liberalism as it's understood now makes the world into vassal states, since that is the only way to gain the kind of monopoly of force that can actually potentially eliminate all conflict in the world. If every state is like this, the actors who hope for such a world see the existence of separate and distinct states as obstacles to equity and commercial progress. A world state, or just a contemporary state that hopes to eliminate wrong think, has and will have technology at its disposal that will make it increasingly hard to think thoughts that question the presuppositions of equity and universal human rights, among many other things. This all might sound like it goes too far, or that I'm exaggerating. But hasn't the media industrial complex tipped its hand a few too many times in the last couple of years to think otherwise? An activist university to the right is required that will lead students to fight across separate spheres and mediums against a vast array of forces pushing for the world described above. Um, not everybody sees the way in which their actions will point to or presuppose some kind of world state. That is what our nationalism versus globalism course will try to show. Third, it follows that more institutions need to be built from the ground up that openly promote citizenship and nationalism. They need to be insulated from the prestige chasing of academics who know more and more about less and less. As Camille Paglia points out in her book, Sex, Art, and American Culture, Universities need to cultivate a class of teachers who are generalists, who don't just teach their pet class in preparation for their next publication. These teachers will be lifelong learners who have learned broadly across disciplines. Teachers need to be able to see things from the perspective of eternity, or at least from the perspective of a thousand years. This helps us see how incredibly new some of our conventions are and also how old some of our problems are that these conventions attempt to solve. Pallius' thinking on this is part of why MCC hopes to offer courses across disciplines. Internationalism and Globalism course, I've read and studied some of the books many times. In some cases, I'm reading them for the first time. Now, as it seems to me, Pallia hates being associated with the right but she often is because she has never lost sight of the importance of nature and the limitations and possibilities it sets upon human life. So, a college that is devoted to the understanding of nature is naturally right-leaning. Nature is both complex and simple, but as we've said before, it is a term of distinction and differentiation. The left seeks to eliminate deep forms of distinction and difference. The attempt to understand nature, a fixed limit on what changes a things can undergo, is the thing that separates the right activist university from the left activist university. It may be the case that men of action from the right will not always understand nature as well as one who is more contemplative, but they will fight for a world in which such a contemplative understanding remains possible. Likewise, a university that cultivates nobility in its students prepares those students for deeds and tasks that will set them apart from others. They will seek out possibilities for extension 
to make themselves excellent. Such students will be worthy defenders of their nation. They will see that to live a good life, their nation must be separate from others. Not necessarily bellicose, but certainly with its own special traditions, with its own way of life. Okay, so let's dig a little bit deeper into why MCC has to be an activist institution, like why that's a good thing. And I would say this, there is no such thing as a value-neutral education. This is another and one of the deeper justifications for why MCC needs to be activist. In an excellent essay entitled The Citizenship Test by Arthur Millick, uh, somebody who works for the Claremont Institute's uh, project, the, um, the American Way of Life, he argues that we can't simply return to value-neutral competence in education. Rather, quoting Millick, he says, quote, Every nation that wants to survive needs a critical mass of citizens who are to some degree devoted to it, respectful of it, and who want to preserve and serve it. An education focused on developing competence without reference to moral ends cannot produce such citizens. End quote. So, to put Millick's words in our own, we could say that a nation ought to inculcate a shared way of life for its citizens. This does not happen, happen automatically. It is difficult work that has to be done conscientiously. As Millick points out, Value-neutral education is easily hijacked and subverted, i.e. critical race theory infiltration, etc. And indeed, in a certain sense, there is no such thing as value-neutral education. That is to say, all education orients us in some kind of direction. And I don't think that Millick would disagree with this. Even an ostensibly neutral education that bestows basic competence in reading, writing, and arithmetic tell students that life is more about economics than about morality. Or at least we could say this. If someone asks, why are we learning this? The teacher owes the student an account of what their competence is for. To answer that is to orient the student toward a goal. To put the problem one more way, if to be moral means that we must impose on students the notion that it is not okay to impose morality on others, you have still given them a moral directive. Even if you like this idea that you should not impose moral directives on others, it isn't neutral. It, po it points the students in a specific direction. Indeed, even when our education system was more neutral, perhaps, in the past, the Amish took issue with it in the Supreme Court case Wisconsin v. Yoder, from 1972. Um, I don't know very much about, you know, uh, court cases, but this is like one case that when I read it, I was sort of obsessed with and just love talking about. Um, Wisconsin had a compulsory education requirement for students up to the age of 16. The Amish in Wisconsin claimed that they thought that American education after eighth grade undermined their way of life and endangered their salvation. The Supreme Court ruled in favor of the Amish, mostly because the Amish tend to turn out well enough not to ask the state for anything. Here is how Justice Berger at the time put it in the majority opinion. Quote, the high school tends to emphasize intellectual and scientific accomplishments, self-distinction, competitiveness, 
worldly success, and social life with other students. Amish society emphasizes informal learning through doing, a life of goodness rather than a life of intellect, wisdom rather than technical knowledge, community welfare rather than competition, and separation from rather than integration with contemporary worldly society, end quote. The Amish reject modern liberal principles of political life. You might disagree with some of the Amish, Amish evaluations, but you can't deny their contention that even education that bestows competence can't help but, can't help but impose a certain vision of the good life on its students. Even the idea that they would have to interact with worldly students entails an injection of moral notions that might explode one's moral horizon. It is difficult not to confront the ways of your friends. <laughs> Interacting with teachers and even so-called classic authors could pose a problem. For example, would an Amish student benefit from reading Jack London's book, The Sea Wolf, in which Captain Larson argues that a human's deep-seated fear of death is proof that one doesn't really believe in immortality of his own soul. Because if he believed in it, he wouldn't be so afraid. Um, many take for granted that encountering manifold and diverse ideas will always make us better. When we encounter new values, we optimistically think that either we will reinforce our belief in our own values, or we will exchange our values for new ones. But as Nietzsche brings out um, in Beyond Good and Evil and elsewhere with great clarity, what if our awareness of so many different peoples, times, and cultures makes us unable to take our own way seriously? What if encountering so many ideas starts to make our own authoritative traditions feel like mere costumes? It may well be that the Amish understand something very important about how to foster a moral and religious horizon that can bring comfort, happiness, and perhaps even salvation to its members. Now, turning back to the court case with Constant v. Yoder, Justice Douglas dissents in the following way, attacking the claims of the Amish. He says this, quote, If a parent keeps his child out of school beyond the grade school, then the child will be forever barred from entry into the new and amazing world of diversity which we have today. If a child is harnessed to the Amish way of life by those in authority over him, and if his education is truncated, his entire life may be stunted and deformed. End quote. Justice Douglas is concerned with the possibility that Amish children are being brainwashed and deprived of the opportunity to live a fully human life. He wants children to have a say in their education, and he privileges the individual autonomy of the child over and against his parents' wishes. In this way, he tries to be neutral. But you can see that he wants to thrust the child into the, quote, new and amazing world of diversity, end quote, which is to say, he makes a value-laden imposition of his own. For, while many do think that diversity is a strength, there are others, like a, another Claremont scholar, Ed Erler, who claims that, quote, any nation that believes that diversity is its strength has already made the decision to dissolve itself, 
This is from his book, uh, The United States in Crisis. In other words, to say that diversity is good is a value judgment and isn't part of a morally neutral education. But many people believe in diversity so much that to say it is good almost sounds neutral to them because they are so sure of its truth. There's gravity. That's the thing. There's diversity, and that's the thing. And there's not much else to say about it. Now, strikingly, of all people, Peter Thiel agrees with the Amish at least about this, or about American education, um, though he does take things in a very different direction. He says this, quote, Our educational system both drives and reflects our obsession with competition. Grades themselves allow precise measurement of each student's competitiveness in terms of this weirdly contrived academic parallel reality, end quote. And then uh, this picks up a little bit later, uh, near the same page. She says this, elite students climb confidently until they reach a level of competition sufficiently intense to beat their dreams out of them. Higher education is the place where people who had big plans in high school get stuck in fierce rivalries with equally smart peers over conventional careers like management, consulting, and investment banking. Whereas the Amish see modern education as corrosive of tradition, Peter Thiel sees modern education as corrosive to innovation. Thiel sees our modern education as promoting dull and drab conformism that squelches creativity, deep thinking, and daring. Much of his startup book, Zero to One, is devoted to liberating his readers from business dogmas that constrain their vision and prevent them from even conceiving of far-sighted Promethean tasks. The point here isn't to say that the desire to win or to be competitive is bad, but that with our heads down, we don't clearly see what kind of possibilities exist or even what competitions we should actually be in, if any. Even a man as daring as Elcebides did not always harbor such grand ambitions. Um, you will know him from Plato, Xenophon, and Thucydides, um, and Plutarch and elsewhere, I suppose. But in Plato's dialogue, the Elcebides won. Elcebides does say um, that he wants to rule Athens, or that he's better than everyone in Athens. But Socrates reminds him that because of his excellent nature, he shouldn't consider his own citizens competitors with him. That's embarrassing. But only the rulers of Sparta and Persia. Alcibiades' dreams, at least as they're presented in this dialogue, were too small. He did not yet want to rule the world. Education at any level, from kindergarten to college, cannot be value neutral. Thus, we have to aim high. We ought to promote the understanding of nature, as we've said before, deeds that are noble, and nationalism. Um, obviously, my ambition is to start a small college. I hope that MCC students dare to aim even higher. Okay, so if the education is not going to be value neutral, if the college is going to be activist, if it's going to have the mission that our school has, what should its curriculum look like? Um, okay, so Montana Classical College is an institution in a time of trouble. Two of the college's core goals are for its students to understand nature and to perform noble deeds. So what should the curriculum look like? Students will take three courses each semester. 
One course will come from our required core. One will be an elective of the student's choosing. And one will be an independent study that the student creates in consultation with one of our instructors. We'll talk especially about the, or, sorry, the independent studies a little bit later. So at first, I imagined that nearly all of the courses at MCC would be required, with very few electives. Then I thought, at bottom, the teacher is almost infinitely more important than the curriculum. A bad teacher won't bring Plato or Nietzsche to life. A good teacher can bring almost anything to life. So, if MCC can find good enough teachers, they shouldn't be restricted in teaching, well, almost anything. They should teach what they wish to. And students should take whatever interests them, as far as their elective courses are concerned, because they will pour their heart into the school if they're animated by the courses they care to take. But, on the other hand, there is something special about having core classes. By having a common set of questions that a cohort of students can think through together outside of class as they move through the school, they begin to form a foundation for friendship. The classroom is important, but it is only the tip of the iceberg. The thinking you do by yourself and the conversations you have with your friends are potentially more important. To understand yourself, nature, and nobility, and to act on the basis of that understanding constitutes a way of life. Our institution prepares you for that way of life. Core classes bring the school together. And so students will take one core course each semester, one elective, and one independent study. So let's talk about the core classes. In year one, during the first semester, well, and one way to think about this is that there will be a kind of survey-ish course the first semester uh, every year, and then a course more focused on one book. This is one element of the college that still needs a little bit more thinking through. Maybe there should be more comprehensive courses as opposed to, you know, one book courses, but um, we'll talk about that. We'll talk about that. So in the first semester, year one, uh, a survey course, nationalism versus globalism. A student's introduction to Montana Classical College will be through this course. It raises one of our core questions. Should the world be many or one? It also helps contextualize the rest of their education. MCC at bottom is an activist institution that is in part devoted to fighting against the world becoming one. A world state is one that would squelch the study of nature and the pursuit of noble deeds. Students should leave this class with a sense that there really is something at stake in how they conduct their lives, and, and, the, <clears throat> and that a monumental task awaits those with the courage to participate in the reconquista of the Western world in mind. The books may vary some from the present syllabus, but the essence of the class will remain the same. It is also a course to test out books that are unlikely to be found on regular political philosophy reading lists. Moving into the second semester of the first year, uh, our second sort of, you know, trademark or marquee class, an introduction to Homer's Iliad. Homer's Iliad presents readers with a radically different moral conception from our own. If a student is able to grasp and appreciate Homer's aristocratic vision, or if they can come to understand Homer as he understood himself, they will have made serious gains in their quest to liberate their mind from the prevailing views imposed upon them by our regime. These two courses nationalism, globalism, and an introduction to Homer's Iliad 
taken together constitute the fundamental orientation of Montana Classical College toward the world. We seek to recover an ancient disposition without pretending that we can return to a golden age. Rather, we must face our dark circumstances squarely and nobly. For students who choose to attend for only one year, they will take these two courses and so experience the two courses that constitute the essence of what it means to be an MCC student. As the MCC network expands, you know that you'll be reaching out to people who understand the stakes of nationalism and globalism, as well as men who have tried to reach one of the summits and origins of Western thought in Homer. Moving into the second year, during the first semester, the students will take a course called The Stakes of the Enlightenment. The Enlightenment thinkers to be covered will vary depending on instructor preference. As with every course we have, we will attempt to understand the thinkers as they understood themselves. Other questions that we will carry into the course will revolve around trying to understand if the root of the Enlightenment inevitably leads to the degradation of our world, or if that degradation is the result of a disastrous departure from true Enlightenment thinking. The political philosophers of the Enlightenment were also responding to very different conditions than our own. So how much did those conditions dictate their political projects? And if the conditions dictated their project, does it follow that the innermost core of their teaching is not as different from the classical philosophers as we might initially suspect? To answer all of these questions dictates how much guidance we ought to take in the present moment and future from Enlightenment thinkers. Then in the second semester of the second year, we turn again to one book, Thucydides' War Between the Peloponnesians and the Athenians. In Thucydides' history, we're invited at the outset of the book to try and look at our time from the perspective of eternity, or at least the closest approximation of it that we can manage. Thucydides imagines what Athens and Sparta would look like to future inquirers who find the cities emptied of all citizens. Which is to say, Thucydides carries with him an awareness that human things do not last. His ability to hold on to this fundamental insight grants him a special kind of objectivity or ability to see things as they are, that we have to try and make our own as much as we can. He will also offer uh, a blame of Homer at the beginning of his book, but an attentive reading might reveal that they ultimately, Homer and Thucydides, agree more than Thucydides initially lets on. Furthermore, he will help us to better understand the political context in which Plato Socrates finds himself when we turn to the Republic in the third year. So as we look at year three, in the first semester, we'll have a survey course called The True History of the American Founding and Its Aftermath. As ever, we will try to understand the American founders, guess what, as they understood themselves. Now, content will vary with instructor expertise. We will try to understand the founders' connection to the Enlightenment and whether they corrected any vital flaws or whether they exacerbated deleterious tendencies. Did they depend on a pre-liberal moral dispensation? that they slowly drew the capital on? Uh, or did their epigones make disastrous departures from the founder's wisdom? Given the precarious state of things today, a question on our minds will be, why did things fall apart? Whatever the answer to these questions may turn out to be, we will still draw inspiration from the founders, for they were men of tremendous virtue who won and so deserved their freedom. They were men who could lift a stone that no two men today could because of our weakness, as Homer might put it. Then in the second semester of the third year, students will turn to Plato's Republic. 
Plato will be an indispensable guide to our understanding of the human soul and its deepest longings. He will help us assess the limits to what is possible in political life or help us establish sober expectations. For it is the case that precisely in a moment like ours, when life feels stifled, that our hopes might become inflamed as we seek some kind of superlative satisfaction out of political life after facing so much disappointment. Plato will help us properly diagnose our current political malaise. Indeed, Socrates' interlocutors are living through the end of Athens as they know it. We see Glaucon long for something impossible out of justice. He wants it to be good in itself without any reward, and even or especially good if uh, being just entails nearly unimaginable suffering. So too, he wishes for political life to be put under a kind of rational supervision that will dispose of all conflicting goods and bring the various types of humans into a perfectly harmonious whole. Our students will be inoculated against utopian hopes, but they will not become Socratized liberals, who, among other things, are people so in love with possessing no hope that they become too soft to act, excusing themselves from all uncomfortable actions by claiming to be prudent. Now, turning to year four, in the first semester, um, this is a course I'd like, I have to think a little bit more about, but right now it's called Founders, Ancient and Modern. The class content here will vary more than in other courses, and it will be more variegated as well. Part of it will be devoted to the classic accounts of founders, such as Lycurgus or Romulus. But later portions of the class will be devoted to learning from more recent founders of successful businesses, schools, and countries. We will discuss how to build new institutions that are informed by great tasks, how to seize and wield power, and how to conquer the world. Um, you know, at least in speech. Uh, in, in the second semester, then, we'll look at Nietzsche's Thus Spoke Zarathustra and his Beyond Good and Evil. With Nietzsche, we will turn to a man who argues that the time for esotericism is over and that dynamite is required. He explores the ancient thinkers that we've covered. He explodes the dichotomy between nationalism and globalism that we begin with in our education here. And he liberates our political imagination from the trite formulations of our own time. He thinks through every topic that makes us uncomfortable today with unparalleled insight. Students' final semester at MCC, then, will be filled with vitalistic insights that will prepare them for the great tasks ahead of them. When I originally, or I guess let's go back a step. So that's sort of like the, the main thing that students will be doing academically. But at Montana Classical College, as I said before, it's not enough uh, to think about things. We need to be physically fit. So when I originally introduced MCC, um, I mentioned that there would be an emphasis on fitness. Um, but seeing as we don't have a physical campus yet, MCC remains a disembodied online school. As such, my attention has been on trying to understand Homer rather than on thinking through the logistics of physical exertion. I was pulled back onto the soil that feeds us all when I, when I read William Wheelwright's letter to Peter Thiel that outlined his idea for a school for boys aged 12 to 18. He called attention to how computers and the internet have a tendency to dislocate us from the physical world. In his words, quote, the internet, pornography, the soon-to-be metaverse, etc., seem more real than the wind and the soil and the waters. This false understanding then comes to occupy the individual's consciousness. Immersed in these man-made alternate realities, the young man thinks to himself, I can be whoever and whatever I want to be. I am unlimited by the impositions of my biology and the manner of my upbringing. 
In the real world, the acceptance of these limits is the prerequisite of their transcendence. End quote. If most of one's time is spent immersing their mind and soul in the internet, it will undoubtedly have unintended effects. The world appears to shrink before our eyes on the internet. Suddenly, Ukraine and Israel dominate our concerns more than our own country's border. Ukraine, in our minds, is an abstraction. If any of us actually saw or even dared to lay hands on the charred corpses there, we would probably hope that Western countries would stop cruelly using Ukraine as a proxy to fight Russia. Most who wish for the war to persist only have the stomach for it because Ukraine is understood through the medium of abstraction, a tendency exacerbated by the internet. The abstraction is in our mind, and so is within us, and hence very close, unlike the physical reality of the country. So somehow, it feels more real to us than our country at the same time that the way in which it feels more real to us uh, distance us distances us um, from what's actually happening. I digress, but you get the point. The internet makes us forget about physical space, distance, and limits. Now, I've wavered back and forth on how organized the physical part of the education should be um, in the same way that I had wavered about how many courses should be required. Um, so should there be mandatory exercise in the mornings? At first I thought, of course there should be. But then I thought many men have differing, phys uh, differing visions for how they want their bodies to turn out, as well as how they wish to allocate their limited time. And men take, things, uh, take on things more eagerly when those things match their own inclination. You might think I'm conceding something to lame progressive pieties, and am therefore too soft to impose rigorous physical strictures on the students. So allow me to put this in a slightly different way. The men who come to Montana Classical College love freedom. They have endured the yoke of fake and arbitrary rules that diminish their vitality and which instill servility their entire lives. Never let it be said that MCC will impose the same shackles. Then, while reading Williams' essay that I quoted above, I found a wonderful formulation that embodies what I think the right ethos of the college towards physical education should be. Quote, students enter at different heights and weights, and so the only uniform expectation we can impose upon them is that they become that they are becoming stronger all the time. This we impose without reservation, end quote. The same is true of MCC. Different types of men will walk through our halls, but all of them will be expected to get stronger all the time. Men will find friends of similar inclination and together will follow different paths towards strength. There, there will be a gym. Organized calisthenics will be available. Weekend hikes will be encouraged. And light fun will be poked at you if you get too lazy. Only men of great ambition who already have a self-starting flame would dare to attend a parallel school that will never offer a government-endorsed credential. Federal standards are not our standards. Men of this caliber don't need the college to hector and scold them for not being ready for morning exercises. They're the kind of men who are already looking for an environment that will help the flame in their soul uh, grow brighter. All right, so let's talk about the independent projects portion uh, of the student's education. This is really important. Um, a friend of the college uh, had said to me at one point, think about how you would take over the planet and then work backwards from there. In other words, rather than slowly building MCC to be adaptive or to evolve in light of external circumstances, it ought to be sovereign and design its own destiny. What would it mean for MCC to take over the planet? 
It would mean playing a key role in developing a right-wing counter-elite who will populate a powerful galaxy of parallel institutions. These new institutions will not be bogged down in the prestige-chasing rat race into which all other institutions are plunged. Harvard promises to provide a transformative education, but MCC will deliver on that promise of a mentally liberating education meant to actualize your full flowering. Besides, Harvard will not transform you. It will only ensure that there are guardrails on the educational path that don't let you stray too far into dangerous ideas, so you know what you aren't allowed to talk about. At its worst, if it does succeed in transforming you, Harvard will help ensure that you can't be free to think even in that which is your own most thing, your mind. The parallel institutions of the future will need thoughtful men of action in their ranks. So how do we make students into thoughtful men of action? Each semester, in addition to taking a couple of courses, students will be required to undertake an independent study constructed in consultation with an instructor. At MCC, we will bring together men who want to understand nature and who will undertake noble deeds. Therefore, each independent study will be oriented around either a question that the student wishes to understand or around a problem that the student wishes uh, that will lead to action. Our students will be the elites of the future. They will have and wield power and deserve to do so because of their excellence. So through these independent studies, they will take responsibility for their own education and make concrete plans. Starting in their third year, they're allowed to join forces with other students. MCC aims to launch friendships that are animated by great tasks. The questions and problems should be of a dizzying variety. MCC obviously promotes diversity, which is why we also promote nationalism. Um, examples of permanent questions students could ask. What is justice? What is nature? Does God exist? What is life? Why do civilizations decline? What is energy? They could ask timely questions. Are there different modes of political organization besides the nation state that are viable today? What technologies make us more, more human and which less? Can science be reclaimed from hyper-specialization? Examples of problems students might approach include, is it possible to eliminate endocrine disruptors in our food and water? How do we eliminate stagnation in the sciences? How do we get to Mars? How do demographic changes affect political stability? What will the next monopoly company be? How do we make Americans fit and beautiful again? Creative projects are also welcome to stand in for a question, producing movies, paintings, stories, new software, etc. This paltry list of questions isn't even the tip of the iceberg. Um, all, there are all sorts of projects that uh, students could pursue. So at the end of the semester, students will be responsible for presenting their best articulation of the answer to their question or problem. In this way, the end of every semester will be a cornucopia of exciting ideas that will have been dug up from every corner of the cosmos. There will be an air of exhilaration and celebration during this time. Young people will be understanding the past and present while they prepare to shape the future. Um, MCC will deliberately be unaccredited so that it can't be pulled into the horizon of respectability-inducing pressures. This will create some hurdles for our students, but because they will be so well-versed in articulating what they have learned, and because they will learn something that is actually interesting, and because they will actually care about what they have learned, 
They will look like aliens compared to regular college graduates. They won't be boring. So, uh, should you go to MCC for one year or four? I think once we have a physical campus, these will sort of like be the two core options, one year or four years. So, we will offer a four-year degree. But because MCC encourages independent projects of the kind described above, uh, our campus will be well-suited for students to come for one year to work on their project in the most mentally stimulating place on the planet. That could be a gap year for a young person or a year of recharging for a titan of industry who's just sold his successful company and is trying to figure out what to do next. Thus, we will grant certificates or notice of successful completion of one year or two summers. And anyone who completes that year will be invited to be part of a network of graduates who participate, again, in the reconquista of the Western mind and world. So one way to think about what we're preparing the students for um, is, or what kind of education we're offering, is this is an education towards freedom. If you want to design a new institution that will flourish 10 years from now, it may very well look awfully strange in the eyes of others today. MCC will be an aristocratic retreat in the mountains, where noble men will steal their bodies and minds for the tasks ahead. The sweet air of freedom, leisure, and repose will permeate every inch of the grounds. <sighs> but before we breathe this good air, let's take a look at the fetid air and cramped conditions in which even a well-motivated student at an ordinary university will find himself. Um, this is life under stress. Today, when you talk to university students, they present themselves as stressed and really busy. Most of them work part-time, some to make ends meet, others because they want to seem like the kind of people who have trouble making ends meet. They will miss some class sessions because of it, and if they face any classroom penalties because of this, they will fiercely and indignantly say that they had to miss. Some highly motivated students will try to take 20 credit hours a semester so that they can graduate early. As they say, it's a lot, and it is a lot. A student faces distractions from within and without, social media and destructive social lives, the famous and useless college experience, keep students from focusing on what's important. Studies show again and again that modern students are depressed and feel harried. This leads students to look for shortcuts, and even if these shortcuts sometimes work, they aren't psychologically satisfying. Life under these cramped conditions of stress turns out differently than life that finds itself with room to roam. You don't have time to really soak up what you're supposed to be learning. Your vision is constrained as you myopically perceive the next task in front of you. You look for streamlined paths through which you can escape this condition so that you can find yourself on a comfortable and respectable perch. A friend a while back sent me an essay by Samo Buria um, that helps, helps me see a, way, a helpful way to describe the difference between an MCC student and a well-meaning prestige-chasing regular college student. Um, and he has a helpful abstraction, live versus dead players. A live player is a person or well-coordinated group of people that is able to do things that have not been done before. A dead, a dead player is a person or group of people that is working off a script, incapable of doing new things. The dead player fits our description above of the student looking for a streamlined path through life into the arms of, say, the medical profession. It's a script, and many people have lived happy lives with this script. But part of what many people have started to realize is that even those comfortable scripts contain increasingly ideologically driven lines that they have to read, 
lines that cut against the core imperatives of doctors to do no harm. It is difficult not to be a dead player. So many incentives all point that way. Your family wants you that way. Your schools from K-12 to college want you to be that way. Your friends want you to be that way. People praise you for reading your lines correctly. It feels comforting to know what it is that you should be doing. And one of the cool things about the script is that sometimes you get to read the lines about how you are a rebel and outside of the script so that you feel like a live player. You are constrained and almost entirely inframed by existing formal structures that greenlight certain pathways for you. If those pathways are good, then such so-called deadness might be a blessing. Our pathways are increasingly not this way. Burry's thinking on this uh, sees companies and even nations as being thinkable as live and dead players as a kind of aside. On live players, Burya adds, what are signs that a player is alive? One strong sign is a player doing things outside of their expected domain, in a new unexpected domain, which indicates that they can figure out new things for themselves, end quote. At MCC, students are becoming live players as individuals, and they're joining an institution that promises to be a live player and to do unexpected things. Some students will come for the political philosophy, but will then become obsessed with what makes architecture beautiful, and through their independent studies, will leave with plans for a revolutionary new way to create buildings of staggering beauty. In other words, MCC is a place where you go to reinvent a living tradition of knowledge. So at MCC, uh, the students are oriented towards a kind of freedom and self-respect. At MCC, the students will accomplish more by having to do less. That is, uh, as I said before, rather than taking four, five, or even six classes in a semester, they'll be asked to take only two in addition to their independent study uh, that they approach. Why only two? Because we respect our students and because we have higher expectations of them. One mistaken assumption that many have about education is that the most important part of it happens in the classroom or that it only happens through the myriad of assignments that are given, uh, having like a very long and rigorous reading list. Um, but in some sense, assigning too much work can get in the way of a serious person who actually has a burning desire to get to the bottom of something. That is, a student can become too reliant on the professor uh, or the professor's uh, sort of imposed standards or syllabus um, to give them the answer or to provide some semblance of order to the text they're reading. But if you're taking too many classes, what else can you do but to move on to the next assignment? What if by taking fewer courses, you find yourself in a position to reread what you just discussed in class? What if when Nietzsche mentions Bizet's Carmen, you go watch it instead of asking your teacher to summarize it? And I know that MCC students will use their time well. They know what time it is. They have the courage to try and take hold over the future. They've already liberated themselves from the rat race for prestige, and they want an education in what really counts. They also, or one, so we've, we've sort of talked about um, MCC as an education uh, towards freedom, and it's also an education in great tasks. I talked uh, with a, a different friend of the college on the phone, and at one point he said, paraphrasing, quote, Wealthy people who live on the coasts send their kids to Montessori school, then to a competitive private school, and then hopefully to a top 10 university. But along the way, these kids never receive an education that transforms them, end quote. They receive an education that prepares them to be obedient, that narrows their historical, moral, and political imagination, 
that deracinates them, that makes them sneer at great men of the past. In short, they receive an education that shrivels their souls and leaves them without the vision required for great tasks. MCC is an institution that seeks to impart knowledge, but it is also, and perhaps more importantly, a place that will prepare students to take actions that will sustain the conditions within which serious inquiries can be made and great hearts can be. To put this another way, I know many people with an education in great books who are decent people and who truly love those books, but who did not have any of their moral opinions transformed by that education. There are pains to make sure that everybody thinks that Aristotle and Nietzsche are somehow in agreement with all respectable views on women, slavery, race, etc. Such people can still learn something from Aristotle and Nietzsche, but their moral architecture is still fundamentally shaped by their regime and their time and place, rather than liberated from them. And because this is so, such people will wittingly or unwittingly promote policies that ultimately erode the distinctive forms of political life. They talk about, quote, political life all the time, but happily cede decision-making power to unaccountable experts in the World Health Organization. They vote for Joe Biden because Trump isn't presidential enough. And they worry about universal human rights not being respected all over the world, without realizing that those rights come with more progressive baggage and propaganda each passing day. Uh, you know, if you read the document uh, with the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, these are not the rights of the American founders. That's not what's being you know, given to everyone across the world or being protected. So in sum, a person can receive a great book's education and still be a handmaiden to those who seek to destroy them. There is a need to actively oppose those tendencies which threaten to dissolve the distinctive forms of political life like the nation state. As another friend put it to me, there is a need to impart something like situational awareness so that the great book's education is not wasted. So, the first great task, negate the world state. The first great task of MCC students will be the negation or prevention of a universal and homogenous state from coming into being. Uh, now, you might just say, uh, this is just fear-mongering to say that nations will find themselves dissolved into some kind of technocratic world state. Really? Well, the Hegelian uh, philosopher Alexander Kojip did everything in his power to bring about a world state. He helped to implement uh, the Marshall Plan, making Europe into a kind of vassal state of the United States. He was involved in promoting the European Economic Community, now the European Union. He was a central participant in the negotiations leading to the establishment of the General Agreement of Tariffs and Trade, now the World Trade Organization. And he took a keen interest in encouraging the development of third world countries. In other words, he helped establish and set in motion institutions that globalize the world, and which point the way towards the dissolution of peoples and ways of life before the synthesizing and homogenizing acid of contemporary liberalism. Without invoking Kojev's name, Michael Anton sums up his thought and how it animates much of the left and even much of the center-right in the edited volume, Who Rules? So this is, I'm now quoting from Anton. Our enemy, the idea of which I write, denies the existence of enemies. Like the devil, it is seductive and promises great goods. It preaches universal brotherhood, global unity, a borderless world. Also, like the devil, it has many names. Liberal international order, rules-based international order, new world order, neoliberalism, among others. But its truest name is universal and homogenous state. To speak more precisely, the universal homogenous state is the underlying philosophic idea. The others are epiphenomena, attempts to make concrete indeed 
what the universal homogenous state prophesies in speech, end quote. In Leo Strauss's reply to Kojev, his restatement in On Tyranny, he argues that a universal and homogenous state would be very bad news for both philosophers and men who long for noble action. Um, Strauss's book On Tyranny and especially the restatement in some sense are like the, the main thing that undergirds the nationalism versus globalism course. Um, and I might add is in some sense like the, the a huge inspiration for my uh, project as a whole. So if you haven't read that, uh, you should. So um, in Strauss's words, Kojev thinks that a universal and homogenous state is simply the best regime, the state in which every human being finds his full satisfaction if his human dignity is universally recognized and if he enjoys equality of opportunity. But as Strauss points out, Kojev says that the work of negating all that stands in the way of the world state is that which raises man above the brutes. Thus, Strauss argues that there will always be men, real men, Andres, who will revolt against a state which is destructive of humanity or in which there is no longer a possibility of noble action and of great deeds. As Strauss also points out, Kojev calls it a universal and homogenous state and not a stateless society, which is to say coercion will still be required at the end of history in order to bring recalcitrant resistors to the world state into line. In other words, Kojev tacitly admits that not everyone will find their satisfaction in the world state. A universal state would attempt to eliminate the possibility of noble deeds, and so too eliminate philosophy, or the uh, attempt to understand nature. The universal and final tyrant will, quote, be forced to suppress every activity which might lead people into, into doubt of the essential soundness of the universal and homogenous state. He must suppress philosophy as an attempt to corrupt the young. Indeed, the final tyrant must go even further, quote, uh, and this is Strauss kind of describing um, Kojev's project uh, or the sort of unfortunate consequences if it came into fruition. But the, the final tyrant must be, or sorry, quote, he must, in the interest of the homogeneity of his universal state, forbid every teaching, every suggestion that there are politically relevant natural differences among men, which cannot be abolished or neutralized by progressive scientific technology. He must command his biologist to prove that every human being has or will acquire the capacity of being a philosopher or a tyrant. As Captain Beattie points out in Ray Bradbury's Fahrenheit 451, quote, we must all be alike. Not everyone born free and equal as the constitution says, but everyone made equal. Kojev's view is egalitarian. Strauss insists, as the classics did, that only a minority of men can become wise and that this is a natural difference. In other words, no amount of after-school programs will turn a natural non-philosopher into a philosopher. Some men possess inborn superiority that under the right circumstances, uh, they will grow intellectually much, much taller than other men. In Kojev's world state, the scientists will be compelled by force or through fear over the loss of status to come to conclusions that support the presuppositions uh, of his egalitarian regime. Does this sound familiar? The final world state will seek to crush even the most modest efforts in the direction of thought. For we all know through common sense experience when we are around someone who's more thoughtful than we are. We cannot help but notice this inequality. The final state will seek to cut down the grass that grows taller. For that grass represents evidence of the world state's false assumptions. And terrifyingly, the universal and final tyrant will have at his disposal practically unlimited means 
for ferreting out and for extinguishing the most modest efforts in the direction of thought. Is the world state here yet? No. But don't you see tendencies all around you that point to the dissolution of the family, of citizenship, and of the nation? Philosophy, which is the attempt to understand nature and nobility, um, and nobility being the beautiful and resplendent rejection of the fear of death as a binding necessity, are both well served in a world that is broken up into distinct parts, as opposed to any kind of world state or nationless world. So if you're a philosopher or you're a man of action, opposing a globalized world, uh, I think is in your best interest. Now, the second great task that MCC students will pursue, this is the positive task, build beautiful things with your friends. The, fir the first great task is a negative one, a resistance to the forces which stifle philosophy and nobility. The second great task of MCC students is positive. They will be founders of great enterprises. One reason that the eventual physical location needs to be relatively small is to create conditions in which most of the students are able to get to know one another. Of course, it would be insane to expect them all to become friends. Friendship is discriminating and exclusive. But if we're able to attract the right kind of students, they might all come to respect each other. Respect is the foundation of trust. And so MCC students will trust each other as partners in the great tasks that they set for themselves. Helen of Troy was the face that launched a thousand ships. MCC will be the school that launches a thousand friendships. I've talked to a number of you uh, through the audio discussion groups, uh, through spaces, on the phone, uh, in group chats, uh, who have DM'd asking to talk. And I can say that every one of those conversations have been extremely worthwhile. Um, it seems like only good people are kind of like attracted uh, to this kind of thing. And you can feel very quickly when you meet a man who's animated by a similar task as yourself. The awareness of a shared task is a beautiful and good foundation for friendship. Whereas I could be much more detailed on the great task of negation, I don't want to say too much about the positive tasks the young men will pursue, because those tasks are up to them. Great men of vision cannot be handed a pamphlet with a to-do list. Broadly speaking, though, MCC students will be able to resist and overcome the pressures of decadence that our regime generates. They will be the flowers, or from the perspective of our elites, the weeds, who grow up through the cracks of the suffocating concrete that attempts to restrain their growth. They will write books, start businesses, become politicians, win rifle contests, strive to understand nature, and find ways to perform noble deeds. In a recent commencement uh, address at Hillsdale College, Jordan Peterson told students that they're at a crossroads in their life. He suggested that to sin is to miss the mark, and that this is a fruitful metaphor for thinking about how people conceive of the world or of action. Some don't know that they need to aim. Some don't think that there is a target to aim at. Some think that all of the targets are equal. At MCC, we will aim to understand nature, promote noble deeds, and defend nationalism, which makes both of these uh, things possible. Now, perhaps this is too much to hope for, but perhaps one student will aim at something like this. I'm quoting from Rousseau's social contract. Quote, the man who dares to undertake the establishment of a people has to feel himself capable of changing, so to speak, the nature of man of transforming each individual who in himself is a perfect isolated whole into part of a larger whole from which the individual, as it were, receives his life and being, of altering man's constitution in order to strengthen it, of subsisting a morally dependent existence for the physically independent existence that we have all received from nature, in a word, 
he must deprive man of his own strength so as to give him strength from outside, which he cannot use without the help of others. So become part of Montana Classical College and let us help you extend your reach. At MCC, you'll be part of the right-wing counter-elite that will win undying glory and everlasting fame. Uh, Montana out.